0: Um, there is a book That I'm drawing uh, some material from today it, It's a great devotional read As you move towards Easter It's written by Tim Keller And it's called The King's Cross And it's a play on uh, If you're familiar with London A particular station in London Called King's Cross And um, and so In that book There's uh, Keller talks about this guy named Andrew Walls Andrew Walls was a historian of world Christianity who passed away a couple years ago. And uh, he points out that the birthplace of every great world religion has become and remained the center of that religion. Hinduism arose in India, and its center remains in India today. Buddhism arose in the Far East, and that's its center today. Islam was birthed in the Middle East, in Mecca, in modern-day Saudi Arabia. And the Middle East continues to be Islam's center. Christianity, he points out, has differed because its center is always moving. In the first century, the center of Christianity was Jerusalem. But as Greek-speaking Gentiles, people who were considered outsiders, barbarians, living around the Mediterranean, accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christianity's center moved away from Jerusalem towards the mediterranean world it moved from jerusalem to alexandria and rome then after a few centuries it moved again it moved to another group of outsiders another group considered to be barbarians to some in northern europe to the franks the anglo-saxons the celts their embrace of the gospel of jesus was so emphatic that that center went from the mediterranean to northern europe And that was its center, even as it expanded into North America through colonization and immigration. And really, for about a thousand years, it rested there. Then in the 1900s, it shifted again. Christianity center of gravity moved from Europe and North America to the global south, to Latin America, to Asia, to Africa. And to illustrate this, one example that can be given is that there are 18 million anglicans in nigeria alone and another eight million in uganda today in 1900 only one percent of africa was christian now it's almost half of the population in fact if you narrow down and you just think of the continent of africa and you think sub-sahara africa which if you're not familiar with that continent or how geography works there is a desert that runs through much of northern um africa and if you think the the northern countries that touch the Mediterranean, exclude those and think of all the nations below that. When you do that, the population jumps to 60% of that population that actually would identify as a Christian. That's a huge jump from going from 1% in 1900 to 60%. And historian Philip Jenkins has estimated that more than 50% of Christians in the world lived south of the equator, and this was in the early 2000s. So you think about what happened, how the center has moved from Jerusalem to Alexandria and Rome up to northern Europe, and now how it's moved to the global south. Jenkins made this prediction based on fertility rates and the growth of Christianity in these regions, and he predicted that by 2050, the average Christian would be a young female living in a Nigerian village or a Brazilian town it wouldn't be someone from Europe, from North America. The center of Christianity has been and will completely move away from uh, Europe and North America. Are you with me? Are you trying to see what I'm trying to say here, how it's moved over time? So when Andrew Walls, this historian of world Christianity, was asked, like, why has the center moved while these other ones religions seem to have remained relatively constant? He said... One must conclude, I think, that there's a certain vulnerability, a fragility at the heart of Christianity. You might say that this is the vulnerability of the cross. Later on, he'd go on to suggest that the center of Christianity is always moving away from power and wealth, that it often moves from those places where Christianity has become nice, safe, kind of dormant, a respectable way for people to become good. See, the cross is central to the good news of Jesus Christ. The cross is not about demanding to be served, but serving. It's not about taking power, but about giving it up. And that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples as he begins to head towards the cross. And he predicts his death three times. Each time they don't understand it. They don't get it, which should be really encouraging for us. As we hear Jesus' teachings and they feel sometimes really upside down and we don't get it. We don't understand how we're supposed to live into that. Man, the good news is that the guys who were right next to Jesus for three years didn't get it. They couldn't understand it. That That should encourage us and comfort us. But here's what he says the second time he predicts that he will die. This comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. And they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. Because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Father in heaven, help us to understand Jesus and his message, what it is that he calls us to. You've given us your Holy Spirit, and we ask that we would be able to hear and respond and trust Jesus in the way he calls us to live. We pray this in his name. Amen. The big idea this morning is that Jesus calls his disciples to take the way of downward mobility. Jesus is going to say, This is what it means to be great. His redefinition of greatness comes on the heels of his disciples failing to understand what he means when he says, The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men and be killed. The Messiah, God's Son, the King, That God has promised for Israel and for the world will be killed. And the first time Jesus said this, the disciples don't understand it. Peter tries to correct Jesus only to be publicly reprimanded and called Satan. This second time, they still don't understand, but now they're afraid to ask Jesus what he means. You can just imagine them walking and being like, What did that mean? I don't know. But I do know I'm the greatest among us. This guy right here, I'm the greatest. And the other one would argue, no, 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 you're not the greatest. I am. Jesus asked me to do this task. Only the greatest would be asked to do this. And you can just picture the 12 walking, arguing about who's the greatest. And it sounds crazy. But not really in light of who they thought the Messiah was. Their Messiah came with perks, power in their mindset, the Messiah was this earthly king who would overthrow the tyrannical powers and he would cast out demons and they transferred the greatness that they saw in Jesus onto themselves. But as we read it, we get it. Like, that doesn't really sound right. You're arguing about who's the greatest. To us, we hear this and it's like standing on top of the chief. You've hiked it and you're looking around at all the mountains around you. And you say, wow, wow. I am great. We would hear them be like, that's so offside. Like, you're missing what you're, you know, it doesn't make sense. Jesus, having heard them, asked them, hey, what were you guys discussing on the way? And they just get silent. They get silent. There's this awkward silence as they shift their eyes away from Jesus. They don't want to answer this. They probably felt a certain amount of Uh, shame, guilt. Why? Part of the reason is probably because they're beginning to understand their way of thinking and operating is totally contrary to what Jesus and his kingdom are all about. They haven't learned it in full. It hasn't become them, but they're becoming aware of it, and there's this discomfort. That's why I think there's great encouragement we can take from looking at the disciples and seeing how they don't get it how there's this tension, how they keep failing, and yet Jesus' response is never to abandon them. He leans in. He doesn't dismiss them. Jesus gets them all to sit down, which is this way we're told uh, uh, of kind of like telling us that Jesus is going to give them a formal teaching. And he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, servant of all. And this is amazing, if you think about it. It's fascinating what he does. He doesn't say, what is wrong with you? What's wrong with you guys that you guys are arguing about greatness. None of you are great. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, no one is great but God. He doesn't even say, I'm the greatest. There's no point in arguing. Instead, what he does is he completely flips their understanding of what it means to be great. Let me introduce this new way to you. It's a profound and counterintuitive reversal that he makes greatness to them included these perks right being with them and because they were with jesus they would get respect honor influence positions of power that they wanted but jesus he wants to redefine this understanding of greatness and if you think about it when we think about greatness we think of like a like a mountain that you got to climb to to get to the top like a triangle We think of those who dominate their sports or those who are the greatest in their field. In a business, you might think of a CEO or in a university, you might think of a dean or a particular professor who's an expert in that field. And who's at the bottom, maybe in an organization, maybe it's like an intern or something. And they got to, you know, work their way up. Everyone wants to be at the top because we think they get the perks. They get the respect. They get the wealth. But Jesus is going to do something. He says, if you want to be first, if you really want to be great, you must be last of all. You must be servant. You must serve. He actually inverts this triangle. He flips it on its head. He said, the race is not to the top. The race is actually to the bottom. If the goal was to ascend, to climb the social ladder, Jesus says, no, that's not it for you. If you're going to be with me, it doesn't work like that anymore. If you want to be great, you do not ascend, you descend. The pathway to greatness is descension. You must take the path of downward mobility. If you want to be great, you must serve. The point of your greatness is to use what you have and use it for the benefit of others. These people are not here for me. I'm here for them. My job is to serve. This Greek word Jesus says when he uses this word servant is diakonos. And it's where we get the English word for deacon from. It literally means those who wait on tables. And it's a word that speaks of personal devotion to someone. In other words, it means servanthood that gets birthed out of a devotion to one being served, to the one being served. And we are called to be servants out of devotion to Jesus. The great ones in my eyes, says Jesus, are those who choose to descend and serve others. You could see why this would be so counter to what the disciples were just arguing. But he doesn't reprimand them. He doesn't come at them. Then Jesus takes an object lesson. There's this child, and he puts the child in the midst of them, and he takes the child into his arms and says, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. Children didn't actually have the same kind of rights that we have today. Children had very low social value. They were an example of the lowest members of society. In the first century, infant mortality rates were incredibly high. So were child labor rates. And there was this common expression as children not having really arrived, as being like secondary or supporting members of society at best. Ben Witherington, he writes, in serving the child they are in fact serving Jesus and of course and this of course reverses the ancient protocol where slaves and children indeed all the subordinate members of the household were to serve the male head of the household Jesus is not only identifying with the helpless or most vulnerable family members so that they may be helped he is trying to get his disciples to humble themselves and rid themselves of the usual hubris and power struggles for dominant position and serve even Serve a child, a humiliating task in the the minds of some ancients. In other words, Jesus is saying, you see this little one? How you treat this little boy reveals whether or not you understand who I am and what I care about. How you treat the lowest members of society, the most ostracized, ignored, or hated, reveals whether or not you understand who I am and what I care about. And Jesus is saying there's almost like this, this chain reaction that happens. When you and I welcome the least, we welcome Jesus. And when we do that, we welcome God. We host God. It's remarkable. And we don't always see like that. And Jesus is saying, look, I want you to see what's going on here. You're focused on who's the greatest. I want you to understand what it really means to be great when you're going to follow me. Now, this is a beautiful and powerful vision, and yet we have to acknowledge many times we resist this kind of life. Why? Why do we resist this kind of downward mobility? Let me offer a few reasons. One, it's because this is a kind of death. Jesus calls us to embrace his redefinition of greatness and to take this way of downward mobility, which requires us to surrender that selfish part of us that demands that we remain in complete power over our lives. Because to serve will be inconvenient. It will be costly. It doesn't happen on our terms all the time. We have plans, and we get interrupted. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a great example of that. Everyone is on their way somewhere. No one wants to be inconvenienced, except for the one that's supposed to be the bad guy in the story, the Samaritan. He's the one who shows mercy. He's the one who actually treats others like their neighbor. Second reason is because we believe becoming a servant means you must delight yourself in pain must delight yourself in, dis- in the disturbing or unpleasant things. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you're going to have any part in me and in my, in my kingdom that I am ushering in, then you cannot be about ascending in life. My kingdom is being built through humility and servanthood. Pride, selfishness, the love of power and control have no place with me. It doesn't work. Third, We resist this kind of life because we believe that being a servant is a sign of weakness, not greatness. Somehow along the way, we've confused greatness with having power to have others serve us so that we can get our way and our own way of doing things. And we do this in our relationships with our friends or family and marriage, even in churches. And it's insidious and it creeps up in subtle ways so that we actually try to manipulate people into serving us, into doing the things we want. It might be in our workplace, it might be at home, where people scheme and try to fight to get control. And the Bible calls this tendency towards selfishness, pride, or greed and fighting to get our own way. It has this word, it's sin. The Bible will talk about how often it, it's almost as if we're enslaved to it. Paul himself will talk about how he's doing the things he doesn't want to do. And he doesn't do the things he wants to do. Our world has this vastly different view of greatness. And Jesus, in Mark 10, verse 42, will say this. He says, he calls his disciples together and said, Look, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, Gentiles being anyone who uh, aren't Jews, lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The context of this is Jesus' third prediction of his death. He's trying to get his disciples to understand this life he's calling them to which is the life that he's living. Lording it over is the way of the world. It's not the way of Jesus. Jesus says we don't lord it over people. Instead, we are to come under and serve others. And this only sounds weak to you because you have believed the lie that if you're not on top, if you're not ascending, then you're not living your best life. And you're not in control, and that you're not in control of every facet of your life. If that's not the case, then you're not really living life. And see, that's what's so great about Jesus' teaching. It's so relatable for us. Because Jesus acknowledges this deep desire within us to be great. It's just that we keep confusing position and power with greatness. We confuse being on top, being the boss, being popular, being noticed as greatness. And Jesus is like, that's not it. It won't deliver. Henry Nowen. He wrote this tiny little book on leadership, and one of the things he, he, he says is, powerlessness and humility in the spiritual life do not refer to people who have no spine and who let everyone else make decisions for them. They refer to people who are so deeply in love with Jesus that they are ready to follow him wherever he guides them, always trusting that with him they will find life and find it abundantly. That brings us to the fourth reason. We resist this life because we have not realized that this life of downward mobility, of serving others, of choosing to see others' needs and helping them is actually the way to the peace and joy of God. There's a reason why Jesus, when he begins the Sermon on the Mount, will say, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit have no pretense. There's no pride. They are not sitting on top looking down. They're not avoiding serving they're not grasping for power and control. They actually recognize they don't have it. They know their needs, their desperate needs for God to take care of them. And their blessedness actually comes from recognizing how utterly dependent they are on God for all things, for forgiveness, for health, for purpose, for the air to breathe, even the ability to obey Him, the power to live as He wants. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, belongs to those who are dependent on Him, who see their great need for Him and cry out. They are flourishing. They are experiencing life in the kingdom. And because they receive from God, they can freely give to others. Because they recognize they're served by God, they are able to serve others. And that is what Jesus wants for his people, for his disciples, for those who will identify with him. He wants you to follow him into humility, into servanthood, into making room for others. Now, how do we do this? How do we do this? How how do we follow Jesus in this way that we're prone to resisting? One answer that comes to our mind is like, well, I just copy Jesus. There's all these examples in the Bible. I just do it. And I'd say that, that is a part of it. But there's more than that. See, the answer is actually to look at Jesus, at what he does in his life on the way to the cross and what he does on the cross. And I don't mean to say that you've got to look and then just learn from his example. He is an example, but he is far more than just an example. The only possible way we will follow him into humbly serving others is by seeing that he has done it first for us. Only when we truly understand what he has done for us will we follow him in this way of downward mobility. Otherwise, we'll just be gritting our teeth trying to do this, even though we're angry and irritable. And people are like, I don't want you to serve me. I think you just need some time by yourself. That one one was me this week. got sent to my room. But listen to what Jesus says again in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This statement right here is the theological purpose of Mark's whole gospel. It's what Mark is trying to get at. It's why Jesus came. He did not come to be served. He came to die and give up his life. He's not simply an example for us. He came to lay down his life for us. He came, and his plan was to die. He came to give up his life as a ransom for many. That's the reason he has to die. He came to die in our place. And he had every right to be served, but he didn't exercise that privilege. See, humility is in God's nature. God's nature isn't to grasp. When Jesus arose from his throne in heaven, he did so so that he could lay down his privileges and come and serve. He laid aside his privileges. That's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, didn't grasp onto that, but he laid it down. And that's the exact kind of thing that we see described in john's gospel when john tells us that jesus washes his disciples feet in john 13 we're told jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from god and was returning from god so he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing wrapped a towel around his waist and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him John 13 is giving us this real practical picture of what Paul writes in Philippians 2. Jesus knew he had power, but he didn't cling to it. The master became a servant and washed his disciples' feet. He doesn't come to earth and demand that everyone serve him. He comes down to earth, picks up a towel, and begins to serve us. It's his nature. It's who God is. Leslie Newbegin. He writes, the washing of the feet is the sign of that total overturning of the powers of this world in which the majesty of God is manifest in the menial service of a slave. And what Jesus is doing here in John 13 and what Jesus does when he pulls this child in front of his disciples, one of the lowest members of society, they're both pointing to the same reality. These events are signs. They point to the ultimate subversion of all human power and authority. They're pointing us to the cross, to what he's doing. Jesus came to serve, and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. For many includes you. That word for, in the Greek, is this word anti. It also means instead of, in place of, a substitute And the word ransom is this word lutron, which means to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. You had to make a large costly payment that could match the value of that servant or pay off what they owed. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come to be served by the enslaved. I came to serve the enslaved and purchase their freedom by giving my life as a substitute. The payment that Jesus is going to make is His death on the cross. And what Jesus comes to set us free from is sin. It's all that hinders us, that hinders us from living the life that we were created to live, all that hinders us from following Him into the fullness of life, all that keeps us focused on ourself, all of our desires, all of our preferences, all that hinders us from serving others. All that stops you from seeing the love of God that He has for you. See Jesus' death reveals God's love for you, and it sets you free from sin. He was motivated by love for you. And Tim Keller, he highlights how all life-changing cha- love is a sap- substitutionary sacrifice. It's easy to love someone who has it all together. Who has no needs, that costs you nothing. Some of us have coworkers we love because they're just so great at their job and they're not needy. So we just love that. We're like, oh man, I love working with them because it costs me nothing. We don't say that part, but that's like what's going on. Loving someone who has needs, someone in trouble, someone who's emotionally wounded, that's going to cost you. It's inconvenient something has to be transferred so that their troubles are transferred to you if you're going to help them in other words some of your fullness has to be emptied out on them maybe you you let yourself be emotionally drained so that someone else can be filled when they're down and a great example of this is parenting Because children are in this long state of dependence on you, the parent. And so parents have to surrender their independence at minimum, minimum by law, 18 years. But many of us give more than that. Think of all the things you must do for them. The time it requires making their meals, cleaning their clothes, changing their diapers, reading them books they can't read yet. And then comes that stage of teaching them how to tie their shoes, teaching them how to go potty by themselves, teaching them how to get dressed, teaching them how to load up the dishwasher. They don't know how to do this, so you've got to be right next to them the whole time to make sure they do it. You've got to teach them your way so they load it like, to the maximum level. They maximize every square inch of that dishwasher. You need to sacrifice your freedom, your time. If you want them to grow healthy, and equipped to be emotionally healthy people, you have to do that. It's costly. In the end, you make the sacrifice, or they will make the sacrifice if you don't. You either suffer temporarily, and in a redemptive way, or they're going to suffer tragically, and in a wasteful and destructive way, because they did not get what they needed in life. I mean, you can apply the same type of idea of sacrifice as those of us who are grown adults who are caring for our parents. We're doing that too. It's costly. We also know that our parents did it for us. But this is what Jesus does. And our culture loves these kinds of stories. You think about so many of these movies that are huge, There's this theme of sacrifice that moves us. For some of us, they're like our favorite movies. We just don't even recognize that's what's happening. There's this deep longing, I think, within us that wants to see this take place. Think of Lord of the Rings. movie's like 20 years old now, right? Frodo, he suffers temporarily and redemptively to destroy the ring. He doesn't even want the ring. He doesn't even want that life. He just wants to live a nice, easy, quiet life in the Shire. He's pulled into this thing. He knew he could have avoided it, and maybe someone else could have done it. But he chooses to sacrifice part of his comfort, his life, his safety, even a finger in the end, so that the ring could be destroyed, so that Middle Earth could be restored. But it cost him. Even when he returns, things aren't the same for him. Think of a more recent movie, The Avengers Endgame. How many of you guys have watched it? Some of you are ashamed. I know there's more of you who have watched it than you're saying, okay? Iron Man, he sacrifices his life. He has to say goodbye to a future with Poppy and his young daughter in order to erase Thanos and his whole army and save the universe. And when you watch it they build you up to this point where you understand what it costs him, what it really means for him, that he doesn't actually want to do it. And then he comes to a point where he realizes what it will cost him and what it will mean for the rest of the world. And so he does it. And it's moving. There are people who comment who talk about how how it reminds them of losing a loved one in their own life of what their loved one has done. Why are these moments so memorable for us? Because we know From experience, that sacrifice is central to real love. Anyone who has had an impact on us has given up something, sacrificed something. They descended, they took the path of downward mobility. And we need to be reminded of this as we're, some of us are into trenches, caring for our kids, caring for our parents. Some of us are in jobs that are actually not great situations where we feel like we're pouring out and we don't even see anything leading to us rising up. And we're like, I, I can't do it. I can't be that. I'm not going to do this. I, I need to get away. And there definitely is time where we need that rest, but we need to understand that there's a part of the Christian life where Jesus says, you will descend, and when you do, you're actually aligning with me. The difference for us that we need to recognize in Jesus is that he is God, and that God's love is more loving He's more loving than any human could possibly be. And he came into the world to deal with our selfishness, with sin, with evil, the sin and evil in the world and also the sin and evil in our hearts. And he does that by making the substitutionary sacrifice. And until you and I get it, in here and in here, then we will not experience the joy of humility, the joy of serving And we'll play this game of trying really hard not to be selfish, to appease God. But if you get it, you'll want to help people because you'll actually see that it is what God has done for you and there's this opportunity to demonstrate it for others. And what's remarkable about when we begin to live this way, when you receive his saving love, and you give away power becoming a servant, and you give up status, his power actually moves towards you. It's woven into the fabric of the universe that he created because that's who he is. He's always giving it away. And this is the kind of greatness and power that he wants his people to be known for. A zeal, For descending, a zeal for serving. He says, "That's where my power moves. Doesn't move to those who are on top, who cling to stay on top, who cling to be in control. It goes to those who are willing to surrender and serve. Those who are willing to descend. My power is with them." Father in heaven. We need you. Thank you for sending Jesus who makes knowing you and drawing near to you possible. Thank you for descending. Thank you for laying down your life, Jesus. Thank you for making it possible for us to be set set free from our selfishness from our pride, from all of our sin. Lead us this week, we ask, being a people who are zealous to serve, who see what you've done for us and respond by treating those around us the way you have treated us. Remind us of your love for us this week, we pray. Amen.